The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It seems like the longer it goes on, the more committed they get to the idea that they should support this war. The fact that it's leading to deaths and more disabled soldiers sort of is self-perpetuating in terms of how they think of it, that if they start critiquing the war now, they're betraying the soldiers that have died or have become disabled. And so they have to continue to support the war in order to protect those soldiers that have already been killed or disabled, even though it it creates more and more of them. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, April 25th, 2022. Emily Hogue is a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley, writing a dissertation on Russian veterans groups from the Afghan war and their evolution over time. She wrote a recent piece in Lawfare about how these groups, which started out as anti-war, anti-state, pro-veterans activist organizations morphed into a big part of Vladimir Putin's propaganda operations. She joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about the history of these groups, how they emerged from the Soviet defeat in Afghanistan and the collapse of the Soviet Union to represent veterans all over the country, how Putin adopted their victimization narrative and made it key to his vision of the state's relations with the international order more broadly, and how these groups are now promoting the war in Ukraine. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 25th, Emily Hogue on the strange evolution of Russian veterans organizations. So Emily, how did you get interested in Afghan veterans and their politics? So I started being interested in Afghan veterans in college. I was studying how PTSD was understood in Russia and the Soviet Union. And it arrived in Russia through meetings between veterans of Afghanistan and American veterans of Vietnam in the late 1980s. And you are now a a graduate student in uh, history and working on your dissertation. Explain the relationship between the dissertation that you're writing and the current conflict in Ukraine. 
So I work on Afghan veterans organizations in the 1990s and how they used sort of corruption and sometimes organized crime to fund support for veterans. The groups that I write about have become strong supporters for the war in Ukraine and have become very tied to the sort of foreign policy of the Russian state, which happened in the 2000s. So this is quite a departure from these groups because they, as you describe them in your lawfare piece, they kind of started out as, uh, if not quite anti-war groups, sort of anti-war groups in the sense that they were pro-veterans groups and veterans had fought for nothing in Afghanistan. So uh, talk to us about what these groups were at the beginning. We'll come to what they are now a little later. A lot of uh, soldiers who fought in Afghanistan felt really disillusioned with the Soviet Union as they were fighting. They felt that they were being sent to do something pointless or that once they got back, the Soviet state had abandoned them by declaring the Afghan war to be a political mistake. Most of them in some way opposed the war or the state's reaction to the war. I would say that the sort of the common attitude was that the war that they'd been sent to fight had been a waste of time, but they had sort of done their best to be heroic. Um, and then had been abandoned by the state in that their attempts to be heroic in a pointless war had been ignored. So they had a sort of a variety of attitudes to whether or not they thought the war had been initially good or initially bad or had been bad when it ended. But they all or most of them felt that they were victimized by the state in some capacity. And so they strongly opposed how the war had been fought and how it had ended. You talk about a variety of, of groups in the piece. I mean, when Americans think of veterans groups, they think of, you know, the veterans of foreign wars or the uh, some of these sort of, you know, patriotic, uh, you know, veterans against the war, right? These groups that you describe, they're a bit of a different fish. They're a bit tied in with organized crime. They're they do patriotic education. Describe the landscape of these groups. Who are they? And, you know, prior to the the current morass, uh, what role have they played in Russian society? So a lot of them started as sort of social groups where veterans would get together and discuss the war and sort of try to recreate wartime camaraderie. Especially in the late 80s and 1990s, they also started to organize politically around uh, demanding sort of increased support from the state for veterans, sort of in terms of housing and medical care. And they did model themselves after Vietnam veterans organizations in the United States. And like I said, they met with Vietnam veterans organizations to talk about sort of the treatment for PTSD and say, things like that. So a lot of their work was about demanding funding for, from the state for veterans programs, which by the end of the Soviet period wasn't very available because the state didn't really have any money. 
So over the course of the 1990s, they were both very politically active and also formed their own private businesses to fund veterans programs, which often involved working with organized crime or state corruption and things like that to fund their programs. But they became politically active in making those demands and were still politically active in the 2000s when the state started to have more money as the economy recovered in the 2000s. And so in that way, their sources of funding have become more aligned with the state and they've become sort of co-opted by the Russian state in their political purposes and their programs. How many of these groups are there and what are their, like, what differentiates them from one another? Who are the major actors in this landscape? So there are a lot of veterans organizations, especially because a lot of them started as social clubs. So every town has like five. (laughs) Um, There was sort of a variety of organizations that were somewhat in competition for funding, especially in the 1990s. The major ones now, there's Eresfa, which is the Russian Union of Veterans of Afghanistan. Um, And then there's also, I think the largest one is uh, Combat Brotherhood, which is sort of an overarching organization that combines several different groups under one umbrella. Now, the the reason you were writing about these groups in Lawfare is that they have come to play a particularly energetic and important role in supporting the current war in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about they've helped popularize the Z symbol. Tell us a little bit about the role that these groups have played in the current environment. So especially Combat Brotherhood has moved a lot of its work towards military patriotic education, which is essentially, they refer to it as sort of the defense of the reputation of the military and also of kind of the historical memory of essentially Russian power. And so as part of that, since 2014, they have been very involved in encouraging the war in Ukraine. They heavily encouraged people to volunteer to go to Crimea and to the Donbass. They treated soldiers who volunteered there in their hospitals and set up branches of their organization uh, in Crimea and in the Donbass. Um, and some of them even went to fight, even though they're like in their 50s and 60s. So as their programs have shifted to sort of protecting the reputation of uh, the military and of the history of Russian power, they've focused a lot of their programs on refusing to allow anyone to critique the Russian military or Russian foreign policy. Um, and so part of that is defending the war in Ukraine and supporting the war in Ukraine. But there's an obvious weird sort of, I, I guess, kind of bait and switch here for these groups, right? They they get founded as kind of protest movements against a pointless war and the impact of that on forgotten soldiers. And then they become cheerleaders for a war that's 
chewing up Russian soldiers, not to mention Ukrainian civilians, at a crazy rate. How do they square that circle or do they bother even to try? So they sort of see what they're doing now as in line with what they've always done, even though the shift in what they've done is very noticeable. Um, How would they explain the through line? Often in the late 80s, they regarded the sort of opposition to war or to their specific war from people who were not veterans as a similar sort of betrayal that I think that this is sort of a familiar story that you also see from veterans of Vietnam, like the sense that anti-war activists spit on them and so on is also sort of a narrative that veterans of Afghanistan describe. And they also sort of now describe opposition to the war at all as spitting on soldiers and sort of on the ability of soldiers to be heroic and to be recognized in the way that they want. And so they see their defense of military action of any kind as a defense of the ability of soldiers to be heroic in the way that they wanted to be seen as heroic in the late 1980s, which then leads them to support a war that creates more veterans that are abandoned by the state and not fully recognized. And is it clear that people who fought in, who are fighting in this war are having abandonment issues similar to those that Afghan veterans had, or is it just too early to have a sense of that? I mean, in some ways, for this one, it might be too early, but it is clear that people who volunteered to go to the Donbass and to Crimea in 2014 have been abandoned in that way to a large extent. So what 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 are example what does that abandonment look like both in in the Afghan period and and in the 2014 period? In 2014 just like in Afghanistan since the Afghan war wasn't officially declared a war at first soldiers who fought there weren't legally considered veterans um and in the 2014 case they weren't acting on behalf of the Russian state officially. They were volunteers. They were little green men. Exactly. So uh, there is no sort of veteran policy for the little green men because they were just volunteering. No relationship to the Russian state, so no responsibility on the part of the Russian state for them. So they don't get pensions as veterans. They don't have subsidized medical care for veterans Many of them are disabled and they don't have the same sort of support and care that disabled veterans get and support for non-veteran disabled people in Russia is pretty bad. (laughs) So um, when they went, they had an expectation that they wouldn't be left behind by Afghan veterans and that they would become part of sort of a combat brotherhood with them. And that hasn't been the case. Veterans of Afghanistan haven't fought for them in the way that volunteers thought that they would. But the current conflict, I mean, it's the the Russian army in its capacity as the Russian army. There's no doubt about, uh, I guess, like Afghanistan, Russia denies that it's a, a real war. 
calling it a special military operation, but it's a little bit hard for me to believe that they will pretend that the fighters who are there being, you know, documented committing war crimes under, under, you know, Russian military officers aren't actual veterans. Is that a real possibility? So they will probably be granted sort of a status as veterans, but it sort of goes beyond the official status in the same way that it did in the Afghan war. So officially, the sort of the Soviet state described what soldiers were doing in Afghanistan as sort of helping Afghans. They were supposedly like digging wells and planting trees and that there wasn't, there weren't battles. And so when people, when soldiers returned from Afghanistan, they found that their families and people at home didn't understand why they were traumatized or injured because how would that happen digging a well? And similarly, the story that people who watch Russian state TV now about Ukraine are hearing is that they are helping the civilians of the Donbass protect themselves against Nazis and that they aren't committing any war crimes and that it's going fine. Um, And so say a soldier that was injured in Kiev will probably have a difficult time explaining to family members who are supporters of the war, who believe, therefore, that it is a military operation to liberate the Donbass, that they were wounded or traumatized doing a war crime in Kiev. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten 
and another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So even described the way you've just described it, it's, it's still hard for me to understand going from fighting for veterans' benefits for, you know, people who had fought in an unrecognized war uh, that the country's now embarrassed about. And by the way, the country's kind of collapsed and it's the 90s in Russia and they're not taking care of anybody, let alone veterans in a sort of shameful episode that the country's really not proud of. It's hard for me to understand going from that to being kind of the ultra-nationalist shock troops of Vladimir Putin who are excited about inculcating 
a new war in children and in having rallies for the war. So walk me through how that evolution took place and and how you go from being, you know, from representing wounded and disabled veterans to endeavoring to create newly wounded and disabled veterans. I think that the reason why it happened is that the original Afghan movement was sort of a movement about victimization and betrayal. And it had sort of a strong element of kind of a stab in the back myth about the Afghan war. Unpack that for a minute. What is the victimization and betrayal and what is the purported stab in the back in this myth? So for Afghan veterans, they tend to feel that they were sort of doing their best to be heroic soldiers and that they fulfilled their military duty in Afghanistan, but that it was wasted on either a war with no purpose or that they were prevented from winning the war that they could have militarily by the state at home that decided that the war Uh, was a political mistake and withdrew them from it. So they tend to, for example, in the monuments they built to the Afghan war, uh, present sort of soldiers who haven't been defeated, but are now in despair or abandoned, like still holding their gun, but victimized and betrayed. So that's 1995, victimized and betrayed is not... And so let's, you know, take Donbass, <laughs> let's wipe out Kiev. I mean, you you still have a lot of emotional distance to go, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> In the 2000s, uh, I think that the Russian state started to define itself as well through a sense of victimization and betrayal. And so sort of the emotional mood of the Afghan veterans movement came to align with the attitudes of the state, especially towards history. So in the 2000s, Putin's government sort of defined itself and legitimized itself through a sense of nationalism that was based around the idea that Putin had ended a period in which Russia was weak and taken advantage of by the West. Um, And so there's sort of a, like a, that Putin is making Russia great again, basically, (laughs) Um, that aligned with the sense that, that veterans of Afghanistan um, had been similarly taken advantage of and victimized by the Soviet state. So it's almost like what you're describing is that Putin adopts as a national narrative, something akin to what these veterans groups were complaining about domestically. Yes. (laughs) They um, both sort of end up defining themselves through a sense of trauma-based power and kind of reassertion of their own significance that ends up aligning very well. And it aligns very well in terms, in both cases, of how they remember war and the state in terms of sort of in the military in particular, um, that allows them to sort of mesh. And how important now are these groups to Putin's domestic 
propaganda effort. I mean, you say they've been co-opted. How big a part of the sort of Putin domestic thought control mechanism are they? It is somewhat hard to say because all the stuff they do is supposedly grassroots and spontaneous, but... But let's assume for a moment that to the extent that it's spontaneous, it's spontaneous in precisely the direction that the government wants spontaneity, and therefore the spontaneity doesn't matter. All these people are pulling in the same direction. How big a part of the pulling in that direction are these groups as opposed to media, as opposed to official government statements? Is this a a kind of rounding error that, you know, only a PhD candidate <laughs> who studies it could love? Or is it, is this a real part of the power base? They have been organizing a lot of sort of rallies. They, uh, military patriotic education in particular in schools has been, become sort of a huge apparatus that involves a lot of money and time and sort of is an attempt to encourage Russian kids to see the army and the military and the work of the Russian government in Ukraine in a specific way. So I would say that it is part of a larger effort to sort of direct historical memory and sentiments about the war and that their work on historical memory has been very significant. While we were talking, I looked up the total number of Russian deaths in Afghanistan, and it seems to be somewhere in the 15,000 range, which is already, if not eclipsed by the dead and missing in Ukraine, getting real close. Um, I'm wondering if you see any signs of cognitive dissonance among these groups yet, or whether they are so all in that the fact that they're, you know, contributing to large-scale Russian casualties that are making Afghanistan look like, you know, a walk in the park uh, hasn't really dawned on them yet. It seems like the longer it goes on, the more committed they get to the idea that they should support this war and that they are defending history and Russia and so on and so forth. The fact that it's leading to deaths and more disabled soldiers sort of is self-perpetuating in terms of how they think of it, that if they start critiquing the war now, they're betraying the soldiers that have died or have become disabled. And so they have to continue to support the war in order to protect those soldiers that have already been killed or disabled, even though it it creates more and more of them. Talk to me about the Z symbol. When you and I first talked about this issue a few weeks ago, you mentioned that these groups had been significant in the in the popularization of of Z. What do we know about where Z comes from, and and what do we know about the role of the combat brotherhood in popularizing it. So the Z symbol is a bit strange. It originates from a symbol that was drawn on Russian tanks uh, in the invasion um, and then started to become 
a symbol of support for the war shortly after. And it's not really clear where it comes from or why it was picked. There's some suggestion that it was sort of officially approved as a good symbol to use by the Ministry of Defense, though it's not really clear and no one is sure. It's not a letter in the Russian alphabet. Nope. Um, nobody knows what it means. There's sort of a lot of like backronyms, I guess, about that it what it could possibly stand for, but it doesn't really stand for anything. It seems to be sort of growing in popularity as a symbol, but most of it is things like combat brotherhood organizing rallies in which people form a Z to show support for the war and so on. If people have seen these YouTube videos where people are kind of doing human formations of the Z symbol or, you know, these kind of slick videos, uh, should we assume these are combat brotherhood or like organizations doing this? Yeah, not all of them are combat brotherhood, obviously, but similar organizations that sort of have connections to the state are kind of putting together those rallies. Yeah, so it's not it's not only Combat Brotherhood, but various organizations with similar ties to the state have been organizing people to form Z symbols or wear Z t-shirts. So talk to me about the future of these organizations. They seem so bound up now in the propaganda efforts of the Russian state. Do they have any realistic role in actually representing real veterans, or are they just propaganda organs now? I I think that they're pretty much just propaganda organizations now. Um, so Combat Brotherhood, for example, used to be an organization that was primarily for veterans of Afghanistan, uh, but that also included veterans of other sort of similarly unpopular wars like Chechnya, but in the 2000s opened up to anybody that sort of aligned with their political purpose and worldview. So most of their members now are not veterans at all. <laughs> um, and most veterans aren't in these organizations anymore. And as they have moved towards support for the military and support for the state, they've also moved away from sort of political advocacy for veterans and have even campaigned to reduce veterans benefits at one point in order to support the state. You have spent a fair bit of time trying to talk to these organizations and engage with them. Tell us about that. What's their willingness like to engage with, uh, you know, historians from, from Berkeley? Uh, it's been bad. Um, so when I first started researching this topic, I re reached out to a number of different organizations, both small and large, to talk about sort of PTSD. Um, and some of them were friendly and talked to me. A lot of them just totally ignored me. And one of them wrote back to me, uh, just fuck off, American bitch, which was a big surprise to me. And I have sort of gotten more aware of how to talk to them since then, but I have still found that because the organizations are now so tied to politics, they haven't really been willing to talk to me about their history outside of a sort of specifically triumphalist narrative of the Afghan war. So help me help me out with the fuck off American bitch thing, because that <laughs> seems like a 
a particularly hostile way to decline an interview. I mean, this is before the current conflict. Why are they so hostile to outside inquiries? Well, I mean, that one was unusual. (laughs) Most organizations didn't write back to me like that. But when I sent that email, it was, I think, about a week after MH17 was shot down. So they were feeling... This is the Malaysian airliner. So they were not feeling super friendly towards American inquiries into their work, especially because at the time they were also sort of working with volunteers, sending people to the Donbass and treating little green men in their hospitals that I think that they thought that I might be looking into that as well. And so they didn't want me to investigate what they were doing. So do you have a sense, ultimately, are these meaningfully veterans groups at all, or are they just ultra-nationalist Russian organization, mass organizations that use veterans that have a kind of history in, in veterans issues and use that as a way of gaining credibility in the conversation? I think that they are mostly ultranationalist groups that support the state. Uh, I think that they are somewhat meaningfully veterans groups in that the memory of the Afghan war is a significant driving force behind why they've aligned with the Russian state in the last 20 years. So I would say they don't represent veterans overall, but they are significantly driven by the fact that they are run by and ostensibly on behalf of veterans. So I guess I should have asked this at the beginning, but why are these groups important for us to be aware of and thinking about now with all the stuff that's going on in in domestic Russian politics with all the stuff that's going on in in the war, why is this a good time for us, other than the weirdness of the Z symbol, why is this a good time for us to be thinking about these groups? Um, I think that uh, looking at how they have sort of morphed over the course of two th- the 2000s tells us something about what the Russian government under Putin sort of does with sort of patriotic militaristic nationalism and also with historical memory in that the way that Putin's government aligns with the Afghan movement has been through a sense of sort of traumatic nationalistic historical memory that fits kind of a stab in the back narrative that comes out of the Afghan movement and that becomes very visible in the war in Ukraine in terms of that the way that they describe the war is through a broader sort of sense of Russian victimization in history and that sort of war memory is at the core of what they think that they're doing in Ukraine, that they're defending the memory of World War II or of Russian power overall and that that aligns well with the Afghan movement and that that shows sort of how somewhat anti-state forces of the 90s came to sort of support the sort of militaristic nationalistic turn of Putin's government in the 2000s. I mean, it is a kind of 
parable of right how the putin ethos kind of was constructed right you have these embittered uh, former soviet soldiers who feel very dishonored and that is the way putin has imagined the state narrative more broadly right the west has shamed russia has uh, all these petty little nations that he doesn't take seriously have acted like they're real countries. And so he's kind of projecting the same grievance at a meta international level, as well as with respect to a dozen frozen conflicts that they are complaining about in terms of their domestic treatment. And it's almost like he built a state narrative around the same material that they were complaining about. Right, exactly. Sort of the the way that they have sort of responded to becoming the right kind of veteran through this kind of traumatic nationalism is also the same sort of way in which these conflicts have arisen through a sense of restoring history and restoring greatness and so on is also what what the Afghan movement has done and that that sort of story has also led them to create new wars to restore their military history. We are going to leave it there. Emily Hogue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer... This episode is the infamous Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, I know that some of you have not yet become material supporters of Lawfare. And, you know, there's still time to fix that because you can go to patreon.com lawfare and sign up now for an ad-free version of this podcast. You can sign up now to participate in Lawfare Live You can sign up now for all the cool things and sit at the cool kids' table. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 